different aspects of it, and you can't have one picture that explains it all or one explanation. You have to have um, a local map that works for you in whatever your local needs are. And so uh, the next question, who am I? Well, who are you? Which suggests there's a different perspective on I, who am I is certainly from the inside, who are you is a step outside asking that same question about yourself, uh, a more perhaps objective. But we really also want to focus on the who are we, because if we're only who am I, sort of never mind other people, <laughs> something's missing. <laughs> And something very important, in fact, we've already said, crucially important, the love that turns the sun and other stars, right? That. So that certainly involves people. So. Oh, I think it, you, oh, okay, we, yeah. <laughs> Same problem we have with this microphone. It, uh, oh, is, is that a rotation? Well, we don't want it to rotate. All right. When in doubt, you should always turn within. That's yeah. it. <laughs> that better work. All right. Yeah. Yes. Pointing down. All right. So that's fine. Yes. Good. Just as long as I don't, you know, yes. look that way. <laughs> All right. Unless you really want a little boom. Um. All right. So. Uh, just a few uh, disconnected thoughts uh, that we touched on previously and didn't really go through too much. Uh, I'd really like to go a little further with. Um, one is about the dream figures, the others in your dream, right? People who you represent as being someone else than you, right? And uh, one aspect of it to consider is simply... Uh, I forget who asked this question, but wanted me definitely to answer it. And this is about the uh, usefulness of asking other dream characters for advice, for example, or asking them about themselves. So because you say, who am I? And you can ask a dream figure, who are you, right? And, and that can be a useful question. Uh, and it can be a not very useful question, I've found. For example, I on the latter example, I once, um, in a lucid dream, came across this uh, young kid playing basketball. I said, hi, how are you doing there? Hey, can you tell me, who are you? And he looks at me kind of funny and says, hey, man, I just play basketball. <laughs> and you could see, he, really, he wasn't filled in. He's, you know, like guy playing basketball there, and so I'm expecting him to have an inner life and all of this. So, see, that's one end of it, which is that why do we think that dream figures have uh, any more feelings than dream tables, right? So, see, that's one end of you know, what turns out to be a paradox that's important to consider. Uh, really, you know, it's just an idea, it's a dream people, they're not real people, so what does it matter what you do to them or with them, right? That aspect. Okay, now let's consider another option, which is, so we have the goal, the ideal of treating all sentient beings with loving kindness, yes? So, 
Here we come across some dream figures over there. How do I know you're sentient beings? Or even let's take, uh, soon we'll have artificial life forms, artificial intelligences, and how will we know whether we should be treating them as we would treat other sentient beings? How do we know? I mean, it could be like, here's a dream figure in my dream, but I believe there's actually a sentient being associated with that image, right? So it makes sense to treat him well, right? But I think so. mostly, I don't know, right? How do I know without you know, subjecting him to some sort of examination and, and uh, basically, hey, let's see your reality papers, right? <laughs> I'm not gonna treat you well until I've got them, right? Think about that attitude. Is that gonna be the one you wanna have your policy say, oh, I treat everybody very well once I am have proof that they have consciousness and all these other things, right? So the idea, I, I think, what I'm more comfortable with in my own experience is say, all right, here's a dream figure. Now I know it probably only plays basketball, but I'm gonna treat him well anyway. I'm going to treat him as if he's a sentient being and no matter how small the sentience might be or it's really my sentience we're talking about, well, that is the better practice than the opposite, see, because we really need more practice at this, don't we? Uh, so so it's, it's, it's not that I am treating dream figures non-lucidly because I don't realize they're not really there, right? It's a different reason. It's, it's one for sort of my own sake of what kind of person I'm becoming by doing this, you see. So I, I want to cultivate that aspect. So it's just, it's a, one of those interesting paradoxes you get when you start thinking about your lucid dreaming experience and what makes sense to do and, and not. And you'll see that many, uh, the sort of the typical attitude with teenage boys in this is it's a video game, right? And so, of course, you know, it's a shoot 'em up thing and you shoot 'em up and the more pile of dream figure bodies you've got, the better, the more higher score. Okay, and maybe it's okay, but it doesn't, you know, it seems like there's, how about and, how do I feel about that? And if they were, what would I feel? That is a key element to include. So uh, it's part of the reflection after the dream thing. So you do whatever you do, but then think about, was, is this it? Is this what I want to really continue to do for the rest of my life? Or is it want to do something different, okay? So uh, the encounters with dream figures can be informative. And uh, I did it a lot asking dream figures for advice, especially when I could find a, a dream figure representing someone I respected as a teacher, for example. And that was sort of an obvious, they might know something, even though it was the same mistake of presuming if you see a friend in your lucid dream, you think they're there, right? That's your... Uh, your reflex to say, oh, hey, we're having a dream together, right? Uh, and uh, it might be so, but it also might not. Anyway, so here's one where I, sort of the last time I did this was with, uh, I met my Aikido teacher. So this is Doran Sensei, and a person I respect greatly. He's not at all an intellectual, but he's a person that strikes me as deeply having wisdom 
that he embodies in his actions and the way he is. And so I you know, ask him you know, for some more and say, Could, is there something you can tell me? That, and uh, <laughs> of course what he says is, uh, well, you know, why tell you more when you don't heed what I've already told you? <laughs> so, you see, the problem is, uh, yes, I've gotten plenty of advice. I've read it all. I've heard it all. But do I put it into practice? Do I heed the teachings? Do I? And that's, for me, the absolute major challenge, going from I know, I know, I know, to I do, I, I am, I am being, right? That, and that's the, that's the problem. So we can use our lucid dreams to help us with this. So that is one of the great values, I think. So now, let's, let's does everybody know this lovely quote from Bob Dylan, which is, you can be in my dream if I can be in yours, All right? Now, I, what... That means certainly on the surface is, is actually very wise. It fits what we've been talking about. Right now, you are in my dream. I'm seeing you in, where is it? It's my dream, right? Because the dream is this projection of consciousness. And vice versa. You see me, right? And so, uh, you can be in my dream if I could be in yours is, is also... A, an offer for uh, interaction in this world, where you know, this dream, that dream, but the dreams can be together. So there's that level. Uh, yeah, there's another, you know, the more I think about these things uh, later, so that I uh, thought about for many, many years, and it occurred to me recently that, well, can I be in your dream? Can I be in my dream? Huh, that's right, because being in my dream, remember this here I am, I'm dreaming, right? You know, we're dream table, dream arm, dream Stephen. Hmm, is this really me, right? Can I be in this dream? No, that would make me dream stuff, right? And that, if we assume that there's a reality of some kind, you know, empty or anyway, vanishing point, whatever, it's not the same as the stuff of the dream. So, can I be in it? Well, not quite, not on that level. See, here's another example of two contradictory ways of looking at the same idea. And this you certainly get every time you try to look at ultimate things, like who am I really, deeply, ultimately, uh, that's, a, that's taking the whole context in, right? So, now, I did have a few encounters with Bob Dylan in my dream, so, so, uh, which was interesting, because um, the second one especially. So, in a lucid dream, I encounter the future poet laureate, Nobel poet laureate, right? You know, isn't that amazing? Bob Dylan, Nobel Prize. Oh, yes. Oh, I say, Bob Dylan, wow! I dreamed I was you. So, of course, it says, well, if you were me, then who was I? Right? And, uh, yeah, well, of course, that, yeah, what do I mean? I was him. And, well, yeah, maybe who, uh, who was I? Who am I? Is the same answer in both cases, right? It was 
uh, not the person in the dream. That's sort of like saying, hey, uh, I played a dentist on television, <laughs> right? Same thing as a dentist, right? No. There's, there's this distinction, right? And, yeah. So uh, one more example, one of, one of my dreams that shows how identity and lucidity fit together. So here we have a scene. It's, a, it's kind of a spy thriller meets knights in armor. And uh, in the dream, I, I, under the cover of darkness, I'm sneaking into the uh, enemy camp. You know, they're past the drunken guards and you know, heedless, certainly. But it's, it's in medieval times, right? And so it's a, a camp, all right? And as I sneak into there, uh, I, I find the, I'm trying to find out what they were up to. And as I find the plans, you know, and that there, I, back through the uh, tent, I climb under there, and there is this case, this chest filled with maps, parchments, scrolls. Here's the stuff, the info, right? And so I'm looking through that, you know, and I look through this, and, you know, huh. Okay, and I pick up this, there's a little square business card-like thing, and it says, <laughs> Stephen LeBaire, PhD, consulting psychophysiologist. <laughs> and of course, instantly I'm losing, right? Because, oh, right, that, that identity and this identity don't merge. You know, it seems as if, in comparison, the Consulting psychophysiologist identity seems more solid than, you know, the uh, medieval spy character. But is he really? It's really the same kind of thing. It's a role that I play and play in you know, this quasi-physical -phys reality we call the world. Uh, so it's interesting, though, that the connection between lucidity and remembering that other world, that there is more, there's a broader context. And in the case of the usual way of dreaming, we call that, here you are asleep in bed, and in the bed you're having a dream. And you have forgotten, there's the wider context of being in bed sleeping, right? And so on. Now, that doesn't mean that when you wake up, you suddenly have reached the top level, because then, again, you're in the same situation. Yes, here I am, I think this is it, I'm in this dream, right? But I don't really know it's a dream. I might sort of theoretically do, but I don't know it in the same way I knew when I saw that card, ah, right? So we don't experientially know it, and so we don't know there's a broader context, unless we do, I guess, right? But that's one of the goals. So that leaves a question of, of well, what, what am I? Because I'm not the role, clearly, so I'm not the... And, and the role is what is connected to all the memory also, because we talked about memory self and perspective self. It's you know the point of view self and the memory self, and that uh, when I wake up in the morning, here I am, who am I? Well, it's any memories pop up, that's it, right? Consulting psychophysiology, right? That, or whatever it is, right? But you see, uh, that's not the whole story, because what about the other that, that the first person perspective that you see things from here, it can be simply a point. Our you know, little souls were sort of a model of that, a small little object somehow. It's a center, it's a center of, of being. Okay, uh, but, but where is it, what is it? And this has got to be a mystery ultimately. 
and whatever words people come up with for describing it can't do complete justice to it because it's talking about what you can't talk about. Fortunately, there is a way of doing that that goes beyond logic. In logic, you can't say something is so and not so at the same time. That's a contradiction. But, you know, in multivalued logic, you can. You, know, you introduce Poe, a third variable, which is possibility. Possibly so, right, which means possibly not as well. But the way I like to look at it, though, for describing who we might be is this little haiku. So, I'm a metaphor. A little finger pointing beyond either or. So, the, the, you know, if you know sign language, the symbol of I, the little I, but, but it's pointing somewhere, you know, metaphorically to what I am. It's not this or that. You know, it's what we all are beyond either or. And that, you know, feels more like, you know, saying something that I can't say, but, but close enough for now. So well, one more little point about this, being conscious. So what it's like, it's like having no head, but a stranger loop instead, opening beyond. It's the, the idea of a strange loop of uh, self-referential recursion as an image of how consciousness actually works. So we've got that, and you know, here we go. It's the evolutionary dancing around a ring and suppose while the secret sits in the center and knows, right? That, that little poem by uh, another poet laureate. So, uh, so we got that idea of recursion and, and, and uh, awakenings within awakenings within awakenings and more always here for us uh, to keeping our mind open to what else is beyond this? What else, what broader context can I bring to it? Like all sentient beings is certainly a broad con context, right? And that's the kind of direction we want to go. So um, finally, we are back to the Buddha. And uh, of course, and that, that, that thing that might look like an upside down A to you is, well, it's, isn't that what the A looks like in, in when you're looking down at your heart? Right? So it's the other way around, so it must be upside down. Or it's for all in logic, the meaning of this. So that's us. Here we are, and we go off into fade to black, right? So, now, if you, know, if you can't help yourself, which it did, obviously, because I didn't do that, it just did it. There we go, Larson again. Now, just a minute here. Are we supposed to know you're the real angel of death? And here we are, Mr. Death. Okay, that's it. All right. Well, friends, so... Uh, I would say uh, that's probably a good place to start. Stop, start, stop. Okay. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, because well, yeah, we've got other stuff. Yeah, good. Thank you. <clears throat> yeah. No, not yet. No. no Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so it. Uh, explain what we're going to do. Yeah, beautiful transcendence. Like, uh, it kind of throws a wrench into some of what I had in mind, but that's always the delight. And so what, what I want to do now, of yeah. course, is make it just a tiny bit more of an interview. This is our opportunity. And so 
um, the way I do this, you know, when I do it on my site, it's like, hi, everybody, Andrew Holacek here. <clears throat> Welcome to It's Nightclub Podcast, yeah. where I am in um, Sedona having a ridiculously good time with uh, 50 of the weirdest people I've ever met. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah, we've lost a few in vortices um, and the like, but we're still here. And we have this extraordinary opportunity to... Um, Paying a few questions off this luminary, Stephen LaBerge, who really doesn't require any introductions. And so what I want to do is start with just a few questions and, and, um, and start with one that was a tip that was shared with me where um, a teacher once suggests when you speak to someone who really knows, you should ask questions the answers of which will change your life. Uh, that's, very, that's really, I think, very interesting. Because then it's like, okay, what are the pith questions? And so um, let's take a deep dive into that pool right away and begin with, <clears throat> Stephen, what is your favorite color? Blue. <laughs> I thought it was blue. Maybe Prussian blue, but nah, more like midnight blue. Yeah, that was easy. So here's an easier one. When you were talking... Um, just now, what, what occurred to my mind that is it's one of the narratives I think we've been circumambulating that maybe we can unpack a little bit, and that is, in your view, does mind exist in the universe, mm. or does universe exist within the mind? Yes. <laughs> and <laughs> it's one of those questions, because any ultimate question, we're asking ourselves, here's the whole, we'll call it, as if we could do that, but suppose the whole is that uh, outside of the uh, dinner place is a nice globe, right? The earth, yes? So we're wanting to ask a question like, well, is it this way or that way? So you've got a map that's going to model that reality in one or other view. And the nature of reality is that you can't have a lower dimensional, a simpler, a flat out map or explanation that doesn't have tears in it if you're attempting to uh, describe a higher dimensional reality. So if you think about in map terms, you've got the, uh, the map, say you try to spread a flat paper over the surface of, of the earth. What do you get? Kind of wrinkles, right? If you're really trying to make it fit, it tears. And that's true of every possible map that you can do. But you can always remember, have a local map where it doesn't tear. You make a smaller map anywhere you want, but it's only a piece of it. So, and this is where the idea of complementarity comes in, is that you can't have a single map that gets it all right. By this uh, theorem, essentially, to me, it, it, it's, uh, I think, related to the Gibble theorem as well of yeah. trying to describe a, a complete system and, well, it has to have contradictions in it. Kurt Gerd. Yeah. Yes, yes, exactly. And uh, I, I think this geometric idea is the same concept, is that trying to map a higher dimensional reality, and we know it's higher dimensional in the sense that there are m many elements that, that are not treated in physical uh, science or even in physical reality, we presume that why should there only be this thing called 
physical reality, which we only know about indirectly through our senses, etc. right? Why shouldn't it be that there are other many more dimensions, maybe more than we can conceive, but certainly uh, all you need is an infinite set of those dimensions, and you can't have a finite account. So let's, let's embrace that concept and say, all right, so we have both and. So how do we have both? Yes, somehow, we are contained in the world, right? And, that, and that's sort of easy to see by looking at uh, the history of life on Earth, right? You know, over you know the last 5,000 million years, things have happened, changed geologically, and gradually life forms have developed, and gradually these brains have developed, and gradually we're having conversations about it. Now that seems like, from that perspective, it makes perfect sense that that's all the physics, the material, whatever that is, is first, and mind develops out of that, okay? But it may not feel quite right, yes? But that makes sense there, right? Brains have got a lot to do with our minds, right? So you can see, well, uh, we didn't have minds uh, before we had brains or before we had planets. So back when we just had a lot of star stuff, right? But so that's that deal, okay? But then, let's think again. Well, what did you have before the Big Bang, right? So we had the Big Bang in the beginning, in some sense. So we got if something starts from a nothing. Well, nothing comes from nothing, right? But what, what does that mean? We say we can track it back and we can understand how this cosmos unfolded by the scientific view that we were talking about. But... Before that, it must have been, and you call it the universe of potential, because this is the actual universe, the physics, the physical world you could call actual. It's the thing that, you know, that you should step out of the way, by the way, when you see that uh, big thing coming at you, because it could be a truck, right? You know, and that, really, step aside is the first thing. Okay, that's that world, actual. But where does it come from? It comes from the potential. The potential contains the actual because every actuality is one of an infinite number of potentialities, right? So obviously that's the greater. Now that world of potential sure sounds a lot more like mind than it does like stuff, right? And so when you push either of these ideas to their edges, you find, ah, Let's try another map that makes more sense here, right? And so I think that really suggests that we learn a flexibility and uh, to not not you know, try to get one answer that is it, right? Instead, we're going to have several answers for several situations and different components. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. What, what came to mind though, Stephen, several things. One is, um, and we've been talking with the group through week, throughout the week, about the elegance and the explanatory power of integral thinking, integral yes. uh -huh. theory, where the idea is to honor and incorporate all these di uh, different forms mm -hmm. of knowledge and knowledge and forms of knowledge acquisition. And so, um, I think this is exactly what you're intimating, what you're suggesting. And, and you know, I think along these lines, I want to see how it feels to you when some non-dual traditions say something like the following, and I've shared this with the group during the week, you know, because there's this proverbial kind of mind-body dualism slash problem. Mm -hmm. And so does it hold water for you to assert um, that mind is 
subtle form, extremely subtle form of body. Body is gross form of mind. Uh, well, I have to say, I don't really understand how that idea works because um, it really, I, I believe that particular formulation is, is a relatively recent one in Buddhism. And, and in other non-dual traditions yes, as well. Yes, and in particular, it, it really came to the fore in the 19th century, uh, just at the time that it was discovered that the electromagnetic spectrum included you know, wide ranges of stuff that we don't see. So it's a little limited bit. Well, there, there are vibrations higher and lower and all over the place. So why shouldn't these things that we can't find you know, with a microscope, shouldn't they be simply a higher vibration? And that's a perfectly fine idea. Except there are the kind of details, which is higher vibrations, ultraviolet. How does that work with your cells? Yeah, and really high gamma rays. You want gamma rays? You know, just, so the subtler you're getting, the more dangerous and destructive it is to forms on this level. So uh, what I would ask for testing that theory is say, well, really, what is dream stuff made of? What are the laws of the electrochemical equivalents that keep atoms and molecules together and build up the structures as we have in, on this level? And and it you know, doesn't, it's not coherent in that way. So it's got to be something else. So that says it must be, a, if it's true, if that's a useful way of looking at it, then maybe it's not subtle in the literal. It's the same thing on the smaller particles or something like that, uh, which is, of course, one way we think of subtle and gross. But uh, maybe it's more like... Uh, looked at on one level, right, this kind of thing grossly, you know, just, uh, but when you look at it going beneath the surface, right, more sophisticated, more subtle reasoning, then you can see it in another way, and that's where we're getting into the subtle bodies. But it sounds like also uh, talking with Joseph about this exact element of the, uh, what I call the subtle plumbing, right, of the Tibetan Buddhist system is fascinating because what is that? Is it actually the subjective experience of the autonomic nervous system? Maybe. But it has some part in the world, and we don't right now know where, see, because the Tibetan technology is the technology of personal observation, right? And what you find out from that is subjective experience. You don't find out what's going on in your brain because you don't even have brains in the system for anything useful, right? But they find experience. So now we're in that place we talked about before where we've got these complementary systems of this wonderful, elaborate understanding of the inside of the system to see how that relates with different parts of the nervous system, which it must because it produces effects that are, at least on some level, equivalent to the electrochemical activities of the brain. So, so that doesn't mean, of course, that's the only connection and that every bit of subjective experience comes from the you know, sort of the existent uh, nervous system that we can see you know, with microscopes. But I, I, I think uh, we really should be exploring that. That's a, you know, a fascinating research question, I think. Yeah. So, Stephen, yeah. uh, this begs another question, of course. So then, uh, and <clears throat> to what extent is there 
so-called objectivity. I mean, our mutual friend, Alan Wallace, wrote a book called The, you know, the Taboo yeah. of Subjectivity. And so if, in fact, when we see something, and this is what the scientific community is largely based on, and its emphasis on rep, you know, replication of studies and the like, um, how, in fact, objective can we truly be? Yeah. To what extent do we actually see something sure. that is real? And you know, I, what I hang on when I think of this is Heisenberg's, I believe it's Heisenberg's yeah. statement, where he says, you know, what we discover in science is not reality itself, but reality as it's revealed through our methods of investigation. Yeah. And so what, to what extent do you feel there is an, object, mm -hmm. an objective world and objectivity, yeah, yeah, yeah. even within the lens of science, or are we kidding ourselves? Yeah. Well, I, I think uh, there are different senses of objective, as you mentioned there, and, and there, on one level, of, uh, as in Heisenberg's quote, that is pretty much the, I'll rephrase it in a moment, that's pretty much the, the current uh, accepted view of physics in current physicists. Uh, well, it's probably one of the most popular ones. And this is the idea that um, what you, uh, let's say, light, it can behave in different ways as a wave or a particle. So you can say, oh, really? Is it a wave or is it a particle? Right? It depends on the system that you're interacting with to make that measurement. And because if you set up an experiment that, can, that causes the light to act in a wave-like way, you can observe wave-like properties. If you set an experiment to observe a particle of nature, what do you know? And so that suggests that what really is, whatever light is, it's that X thing, and we see it in different ways, which the whole story is the experimental apparatus, what we subject it to. And I think that the thing about the collapse of the waveform having to do with consciousness, I don't think that's the level of worse. It has to do with when you do something on the level of whatever you're studying, you, you force it to be in one of two states. And if that's the two choices, and, and that's what makes it look like what it does. So do we know what it looks like when you don't make it look like anything? Well, no, we couldn't. But does that mean, and here's for me the, the really challenging question, which is, so does that mean that um, the moon isn't there when nobody's looking? You know? And I just find that hard to believe that that's so, because uh, there's so many complications. But it's not there idea. for the observer, right? Well, the thing is, it's not there for the observer, that's for sure, right? And, it's not, and if it's not there for any interaction with the physical world, then it's, in a sense, not a part of the physical world, right? But it is. See, it's gravitationally interacting with all the other planets and with ourselves even very subtly. So even though we don't know it, it's still there, right? And so it's like, uh, it, well, what do you know? Do you think... I don't know. Do you think he, there's the... I don't see any back of Andrew's head. Do you think he's got a back side of the head? Let, let, let's check it. I'm not sure what it's... Because we blew it off this morning. <laughs> yeah. So, so there are definitely questions that you can get to very quickly yeah. that nobody really knows how to even address them about... And people serious, intelligent people will say things like... No, the moon isn't there when you don't look at it. 
Uh, well, all right, but I think uh, I think most people would go for the formulation that I made, which is it wouldn't be there if nothing in any sense looked at it, because that's how we define things that are part of one world, is they interact with the other parts of that world. And that's how we define parts of the mind, is the you know, elements of the mind that interact with the other elements of the mind. It's like a set of interacting features. So, same ideas about physics. So, clearly, asking the questions about physics and the mind and the nature of reality or of self all leads back to this uh, impossible question because it's uh, about the whole, right? And we can't really you know, address it. it. Back to the ultimate mystery, which is, how can it be? Why? Is there anything? Yeah, right, which there must be something, whatever it is, but there's something, and that is seems like just plain incomprehensible. You think about it and say, oh, okay, well, let's just do nothing, all right? So there's nothing. But just, but, but just because it's incomprehensible, perhaps, and again, we're starting mm -hmm. to enter that domain where everything's in quotations, does that, in fact, imply that it's unknowable? Is there, in fact, another apparatus yeah, of knowing, yeah. a kind yeah. of Gnosticism is, or whatever, that could know it, but it's actually transconceptual or preconceptual? That, that, that could be, but it could also be that what you need to learn as well as how to know is how to unknow, yeah. right? And this is more like an unknowing that you recognize, because surely there are mysteries, and that doesn't mean that we have to know everything, because uh, if we try to know something that by doing so makes it not what it is, then we're not knowing it. Say, just to know something uh, by, if I can point to this thing that we're trying to know, say this thing is the thing we want to know, this ultimate mystery, right? Having pointed to it, I've made a distinction. I've separated from something else. And that, you know, violated the rules of the game because we just said it's the only thing. There's not two things or three or more. There's not somebody else outside it pointing to it, right? So we get ourselves, I think, in a position where we're trying to ask questions uh, that we can't answer because of the way we put them. Yes, exactly. And, yeah. and we, that's yeah. one of the things we were talking about at the outset. There were some questions that were what I call it-based questions. Mm -hmm. And then that's where I use the Heisenberg thing that yeah. like the Buddha would often say to some of his disciples, a particular question was directed at him, and he would say, the question is erroneously positive. Yes. Because yes. the very way you ask the question already sends the mind in a certain direction. Mm -hmm. And as it goes down that rabbit hole, perhaps it's the wrong rabbit hole. Exactly, exactly so. So I think the, the main thing we can expect, um, we optimists, uh, from science and spirituality, is a more of a, uh, a mutual understanding and cooperation coming out of that knowledge doesn't come just from experiment, Mr. Scientist, right? That's one way of knowledge, but there's also experience. And these two together is really the whole of our way of knowledge that can be shared objectively with others. And that, I believe, is how progress can be made. And that's sort of why I'm you know, if I have a religion, it's something like science as it should be. It's the idea of a shared endeavor of seeking to attain what objective knowledge we can, which is not easy, right? But that's the endeavor, to share this and develop it, and we hope for the better of humanity. And I think this is a really important point, Stephen, because when we talk about things like emptiness, which we've been trying to circumambulate here, 
one of the near enemy, uh, enemies of this is like nihilism, or thinking that right. reality is some kind of ontological sliding yeah. scale, yeah. that at some point it just doesn't, so to speak, bottom out. Yeah. And so I think the challenge yeah. here is what, in fact, if there is a bottom, yeah. what is that bottom? Yeah, yeah. well, and, and, and that you know, is, again, one of those questions that is ultimate. Think about it. Big Bang, all right, that's the beginning. Okay, now there's a thing before it, right? And another one, right? And before that, okay. Yeah, here we are, turtles all the way down, right? Because, well, I mean, there's another one before and before that doesn't what, what was the first one. But I, I think the way out of that is, as I suggested, that you're not going more the same, but it's going from actuality to potentiality, and that's a different level of, uh, Existence. It's not really existence being, maybe. But uh, we are going to uh, find new ways of addressing these problems, certainly. But, but the understanding of the basic mysteries is ancient. Yeah. And so here's another question that, that may seem philosophical, but yeah. I think it's, it's extremely practical. And that is this notion of, and, and pardon the, the term, but in a certain way we've been talking about the plastic nature of reality, mm -hmm. plasticity. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of traffic these days with neuroplasticity. Mm -hmm. In the inner traditions, I often talk about naughty plasticity, yeah. that the solar body is also sure. plastic. But one of the things that this um, evokes for me is my term here, ontic plasticity. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, how cooperative, how plastic is the phenomenal yeah. world? Yeah. And in fact, is it kosher to say that we don't see things from perspectives but things mm -hmm. actually are perspectives. Mm -hmm. Because if we, if, if we see things from perspectives, that seems to imply right. a subvert mm -hmm. kind of representationalism. Right. There's still something being represented. Yeah. Yeah. But is it, in yeah. fact, just merely perspective itself? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that is exactly a coherent point of view coming out of the, the, the remember we had these two global maps of are things there anyway, even if you don't perceive them, or are they not? And that assumes not, right? And, and uh, but part of the problem, remember, is that any one of those two views, when you just look at it to completion, it doesn't really hold up without a tear here or there. So uh, I'd say, sure, that sounds like a, a useful concept to explore. Um, but the thing I, I'd like to address from what, what you just mentioned there and that is relevant to us here, I think, is dream bodies, subtle bodies, and physical bodies. Because I think that this is something that is more uh, complicated than it should be. And, and please correct me if, if, if I'm missing something, but it seems to me what is normally called subtle body, oh, it, or even several subtle bodies in some systems, but it is the thing that we experience in dreams. In dreams, we're in some body, and that body does things in a dream world, apparently, right? And that body is not the same as a physical body, right? Because it's somewhere other than where the physical body is, so we say that. But rather than putting it as it's a made of different stuff and all that, say, but it's a... It's a mind body. It's a body, a body that you have made in your mind that has some relationship to your actual body. That's why it looks like you, know, you fly and have wings. You fly like this, right? With that. It's actually it's actually called yeah. manomaya, made of mind. Yes. Yeah. And, and I think that's right. 
And of course, what we don't know is how does mind make that, right? And does it make it, you know, the neural networks or what? You know, it doesn't have to, by the way, make it only through neural networks just because it might for our brains. I mean, there may be many different ways to implement uh, the form of mind. And I think that must be so, that why, otherwise we're saying, the way humans are, and the way we think about things, and our minds, and our, the association with our brains, is it. There's nothing else in the vast, you know, multitude of uh, multiverses that is different. No, and I think there's room for the, some kind of a mind before we've got any kind of a body. And that's intriguing, but it's, it's an open possibility. I should say, how does it work? And, and that's all I think we should be willing to, you know, every idea, uh, hypothesis, uh, needs a kind of checking. It serves checking uh, with either common sense, which is sometimes an adequate goal, or uh, by experiment. And that's the point of experiments in science, is to determine whether your guess is consistent with what else you believe to be so. And the same thing should be true on the inner world, because if we don't test our inner views, then we get a mixture of truth and, and imagination, yeah. right? Where, because we all know that we're wrong about things. We don't know we're dreaming, for example, until we do, right? And so we think something that's not right about it. So that's... Yeah. If we can get better at that and sharing that information, I think uh, we can make I think that's what, more progress. That's what makes you yeah. so unique, Stephen. We've been, you know, one of the main narratives of our week here has been this theme of openness. Mm -hmm. Meditation is habituation to openness. Openness is a synonym for emptiness. And so your, your capacity um, to remain agnostic, I mean, the power of the open question, yeah. I think is, is formidable. And I'd see near enemies on both sides. And what you're alluding to in terms of like the sliding scale, and, and this is yeah. a little um, jingle that I often say, is that it's really important to have an open mind, but if your mind is too open, your brains will fall right. out. Yes. And this is what happens when minds are too open. Uh -huh. It's yeah. just like whatever. And so so right. the sliding scale, there has to be yes. some metric yes. of reality. Yes, yeah. and, and, and there could be too much and not enough, and that's, that is one of our challenges, is getting it right. Yeah. So. And so as we start to close this up, you are also unique as a scientist because not only do you engage in classic third-person so-called objective science, but in the work that you do as a phenomenologist, you work with, with first-person science. Yes. And so to get more personal, um, it's rare for people to both be subject and object of the science that they do. And so with that in mind, and for many of us here, we've heard intimations of this, but some of our listeners um, perhaps have not, to what extent does your science continue to in inform and transform your life? I mean, yes. when you leave the laboratory, do you leave your insights in the sleep lab, yeah. or are you somehow able to bring them into your life and actually help them, yeah. use them to change the way you look at reality yeah. altogether? That, that, that's a, a deep question and difficult to answer in a short time, but I'll, I'll make an attempt, and, and that is when I first started learning lucid dreaming, it was for a scientific purpose, having to do with, I needed to have someone who could uh, have lucid dreams in the laboratory and then 
uh, make signals and marks in the records and things like that, and I couldn't find some, so I'm going to learn to do this so I can do that. Now, what happened as I developed that ability and had more and more lucid dreams is I found that many of the dreams were very educational, personally, that they were teaching me something, and that they had uh, a wonderful um, path in them, and that, that I was finding that by the further practice of it, that this was a, an area that could combine two of the major uh, directions in my life. One, as a scientist, exploring this state, which we knew very little about, and the other was my inner practice. It was a way that I could uh, develop and make it a spiritual practice, essentially the same idea with the dream yoga. It, but it just occurred to me that this is actually, this is both an inner and an outer path for me. And that was uh, very fortunate and surprising to me that that was so. And of course, it is very different from the uh, science has various um, standards and prejudices like every other social group. And one of the ones they have is that it's not objective to be a subject. You shouldn't be your own subject because it's you know, bad. And I prefer to say, well, if the subject, the topic, is consciousness, then I certainly want to see the first-person evidence myself, in addition to getting reports and data from the outside of me and others. Just because, how can it be that uh, you're going to know what you're studying if you don't examine it that way? So I, I think that's an example of, of a prejudice that has to be overcome for a science of consciousness to develop, is that, of course, people, scientists should be observing inside their dreams and their meditation practices, etc., because that's one of the primary ways we can understand what is happening. Then you get ideas of what experiments can be done to verify or test different possibilities. But if you never do that, you really don't know what the topic is even. Yeah, that's it's what also Alan talks about is the emergence of contemplative scientists. Yes. Which yeah. in the traditional academy is almost an oxymoron. Yes. How can that actually yeah. be? Yeah. Yeah. And so in that regard, you know, you, you've been a real pioneer, and I've shared also yeah. this little jingle with the group, and maybe your life can attest to it if you turn around. You can always tell who the pioneers are by all the arrows in their back. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. shot by those behind them. And yeah, so finally, sure. you know, in closing, I, want, I wondered um, if you could make a comment on what I started the program with a couple days ago, this really compelling quote from Matthew Walker in his book, Why We Sleep, where he relegates, I don't know if you've seen it, Stephen, two, three pages to lucid dreaming. Mm -hmm. But he says something really compelling at the very yes. end of the section where he says it's entirely possible that lucid dreamers represent the next iteration in Homo sapiens evolution. Sure. And of course, we all here, we know that. That's just yeah. where we're leading the frontal edge. But I'm curious, um, you know, hubris aside, how viable is that proclamation? Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I, I can I can see. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Walker. That's a kind thing to say. Of course, the other side was well, and maybe not. Of course, they may just be crazy, right? <laughs> a psychophysiologist, <laughs> right? That's it. Psycho and psychophysiologist. But uh, from my perspective, uh, this is really more about not biological evolution, but cultural evolution. Because after all, teachings of dream yoga go back 
uh, how many, what, at least a thousand years of the Tibetan stuff. Right? And uh, we are learning from previous experience, from cultural uh, information, and that's what we're using to make progress in that. There's a great deal of progress to be made just by the ideas that there are practices, such as meditation, um, lucid dreaming, that can be developed by certain well-defined methods, and if you do this, you can find this result, and you can progress in various ways on your path to greater understanding. And so that, that's what we have from our forebearers, the people who have gone before us and presented their life work to us. And so I'm very grateful to them of just thinking about how much we owe to them, the people who planted the tree that we are yeah. eating the fruit of. Yeah, I mean, Chardin, of course, yes. you know, phenomenon of man, to summarize his work, evolution hasn't stopped, yes. it's only moved indoors. Yes. And yes. so, in fact, what do we do at night? Yeah. In the natural curfew of the night, we move indoors. Yes. What do we do when we go to sleep? We close the door, mm -hmm. the sense gates, the doors of our perceptions, we move indoors even further. Right. And so it's really at the evolution of consciousness, right. of mind, that this trajectory perhaps yeah. continues yeah. its... Relentless march. Yeah, and so lucid dreaming has been with, the potential for lucid dreaming has been with us, presumably for at least 70,000 years, as we had what it took, given the brains we had, but what was missing were our shamans, who were the uh, lucid dreamers of the time, weren't in the habit of sharing their knowledge with others, because it was kind of a priesthood, this is our... Mm, private info, but this has changed now where this knowledge is being freely available and both coming from the Tibetan tradition it's remarkable to see how much knowledge is there that's being uh, unwrapped now and the same thing with the scientific research and all this material being available if we can just together also by the way I might add uh, with the internet there's a vast uh, access to everything. But that means also to noise. There's you know, knowledge and not really knowledge. And, and because it's so easy to produce, there's more of the not really than there is of the knowledge. And you can see that just by looking at Wikipedia page on lucid dreams. And just you read it, you'll say, what is this? This is not, isn't any one of us could do much better. Just, you know, just writing a description of what we know about this agreement. So, so there's, a, there's a kind of problem of, of what to do. We have to, I think. Uh, I, I'd like to, in fact, uh, uh, reinvigorate the uh, concept that we were doing in the 90s with the Lucidity Institute had a membership site where people like you would get a newsletter in the mail uh, twice a year and have an experiment in it. Fill it out and send in the results, and the next experiment would report on what happened. So we test out new methods, we test out uh, all kinds of uh, phenomenological experiments of what happens and what any of you could observe in your own dreams by combining that data and looking at it analytically, and carefully, and scientifically. We then make progress in a way that just it doesn't happen otherwise. So That's a, a completely prescient comment because it's exactly where I was going to go. As we start to close up here, you know, part of the charter of what we're doing with our little nocturnal club, which is, I think, completely confluent with yes. the Lucidity Institute, is cross-pollination of ideas, so-called experts in different arenas, 
And the open question then is, how can we, as an international community, best support your pioneering work? So there's the answer, which is that you can help to make the uh, internet version of the Lucidity Institute uh, nightlight program, which we probably call something like the Oneira Nautical Society, just because it, that, that fits more like what you know, we, we want people to see it as. It's an adventure. It's learning to do something like dream, flight, and how does this work? How do we get around in the dream? How do we get there? How do we make the most of it? You know, what are the best uses of it for different people at different times? How do we access it? And that can be done by, I mean, there's several things. One, of course, uh, you'll, you'll get invitations to join in our activities, uh, and anyone who has any internet um, expertise, we can use help there in setting up structures for that. Uh, but the main point is to, to realize the need for the participation is that that's how we find out. That's how we know spinning works as well as it does. That's how we know about one amount of sleep interruption and all of the techniques that we are presenting have been the product of scientific research. But they all started with somebody's individual observation in their own drink, a phenomenological observation. Hmm. This is interesting, I wonder, right? And then it's tested. Because it's not, you get what you get on the internet, boy, there's a zillion different claims that everything works. And, and I know, because I tried it, and it worked. And that's it. You know, and, and we humans, you know, that's a very important you know, source of knowledge. When, well, I know somebody who did it, right? And that comes back from the when there are only about this many of us in the group, right? But not now. Now we've got how many millions of millions in, on the internet producing material. So that will be a major challenge for our near future. The growth of knowledge, yes, but also the growth of ignorance. And, and, and the fact that Wikipedia, everybody's input is equally weighed. So yeah, uh, so somebody that knows about the topic for whatever reason, personal experience or expertise in some way, has no more weight than some kids say, hey, kind of fun, let's do this, right, dang it. And whatever they wrote is gone. <laughs> so nobody really wants to do it for that reason in, in terms of the professional society. And this is, a, I think, a major problem in our the growth of knowledge is the internet is so powerful in terms of availability of information. Yeah, or misinformation. Yes, so, that's it. So Stephen, as we wrap this up, it, it's really it's such an honor, delight to spend time with you in this sane asylum called Mago. And um, it's, it's really rare, um, but I have to speak my reality, it's really rare to be with, really, no, no exaggeration, a forefather, um, a true pioneer, you know, a cutting edge um, scientist and also a spiritual practitioner. And so I, for one, and I'm sure our group applauds everything that you've done, all the arrows that are still in your back. And um, it's been such a delight to spend this time with you. And, you know, may our paths cross in this dream and in many other dreams as frequently as we can make it happen. Thank you so much.